So this week we're going to get back to our series about uh, some of the weird and scary and confusing and crazy passages of Scripture. I think too much of the time, too many of us um, just avoid passages of Scripture that seem to be okay with slavery or misogyny, or it seems to contradict provable science, or it's like there's some rules in there that we keep, and there's some rules in there that we don't, and it's just hard. So the easiest thing is just to kind of skip them and just kind of ignore those things. But then when we're confronted with these hard questions, we realize that we don't have the answers. And I think that's why a lot of young Christians lose their faith when they go to school or they go out in the world and they say, you know what? We do kind of keep some of the rules, but not the others. And the Bible does seem to be okay with slavery. And God does seem to be really violent. And God does seem to kind of hate women. Is that a book I want to commit to? Is that a God that I want to worship? So what we've been doing is we've been asking these questions on purpose, you know, intentionally. And, and asking ourselves, is it possible that to some extent we've been reading the Bible wrong? Is it possible that maybe it doesn't say that God loves slavery? Maybe it doesn't say that God hates women. Maybe the Bible doesn't say that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Maybe the Bible doesn't say that eating shrimp is a sin. And maybe we don't have to choose between believing in the Bible and believing in a good, loving God. So we're trying to really understand what the Bible is really trying to say to us, and it's work. Digging is hard, right? It's work. But we got a great shovel. We have a, a great um, like helper in this, and it's this little book we've been going through. It's How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Campbell. Great book. If you don't have it, you should get it. A lot of what we're teaching now is kind of right out of this book. So with all that said, today we're going to get into looking at something that a lot of critics of Christianity bring up, and that is that God and the Bible are misogynistic, that God is anti-women. And I got to tell you, it gets confusing when you look through the Bible and you read about these men, especially in the Old Testament, and they've got multiple wives, and they are buying and selling and trading their wives and daughters and treating women horribly. And you know what? They're not the bad guys. It'd be easy if they were the bad guys, and we'd say, well, that's not how you do it. That's a bad guy doing it. But these are like the heroes of the Bible. We've got Moses had multiple wives, and the Bible calls him the greatest prophet ever. Abraham basically turned his wife into a sex slave twice. And the Bible says that he was a friend of God. David had multiple wives and sexually abused, it sounds like the news today, sexually abused a woman, tried to cover it up, and ended up killing somebody. And yet the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon had 700 wives and a whole, right, and a whole harem, and a, a whole harem of concubines besides that. And the Bible says that he was the wisest man that ever lived. So these guys are held up to be good guys in the story, and yet they treat women horribly. So does that mean that God sees misogyny as good in the Old Testament? And then I hate to tell you, but it doesn't get a lot better in the New Testament. 
Because in the New Testament, we see verses demeaning women in 1 Timothy. Paul says, I do not let a woman teach men or have any authority over men. Not gonna happen. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says women should stay silent in church. And you know what's interesting? It's not saying they shouldn't preach. It's saying they shouldn't talk at all. That's what, it's, that's what it says. It says if they have a question, they can wait till they get home and ask their husbands. How about that? So really, if I'm checking out Christianity and I come across this stuff in the Bible, I mean, I could see how somebody could say, wow, the Bible is misogynistic. God does hate women. God wants to hold women down. So let's dig, right? Let's, let's really try to really understand what it's really trying to say. And to do that, we're gonna use our four rules of engagement from the book. Here's the rules. Number one, uh, the Bible is a library and not a book. Number two, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And number three, we never read a Bible verse by itself. Everything we read in the Bible, we have to take in the context of the overall story of the Bible. And number four, that story leads us to Jesus. So anytime you read the Bible, period, really, but anytime you read a difficult passage or something that we said makes you say, what the heck, then we go back to those four rules. So this story uh, begins in Genesis, so we're gonna start there today, and this is where God creates everything, um, including human beings. Does anyone remember the Hebrew word for humanity, human beings? Thank you, Adam. Yes, my preaching is not in vain. Uh, Adam, uh, Adam, uh, humanity is the centerpiece. It's the most important thing in creation because God, everything God made was good, but humanity was special. Because in Genesis 1:27, it tells us that God created Adam in his own image. Let me ask you a question. Is that just boys? Is that just boys? It can't be. It says he created men as a, here's a little poem it has. The image of God, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So it's pretty clear that male and female Adams, humanities, humans, are created in the image of God. Look at verse 28, really important word coming up here. Then God blessed them. He created man and woman, male and female humans. Then God blessed them, and here's the blessing. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Is he just talking to boys here? He's not talking to boys, he's saying be fruitful and multiply, right? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry on the ground. Look at verse 29, God says, I provided all the plants and trees and stuff you need for food. Just pull it off the trees and eat it. So here's where we are in the story so far. God has created humans, male and female, and he's like commissioned them to do a couple of things. To rule the earth, to eat whatever they want, and to make babies. All right, pretty good gig. You agree? So let me ask you this, with those verses in mind, in which verse did it identify which gender was superior? It doesn't. Because in Eden, their value, in God's perfect creation, their value and their dignity and their place as rulers of the world is not determined by their gender. Their value in God's perfect creation their value, their dignity, and their place in, in, as rulers is because they're both created in the image of God. You with me so far? Yes. 
go like this a lot, and we'll keep this thing going. Got a lot to cover today, okay? Uh, Genesis 2, chapter 2, kind of retells the same story of creation. You ever notice that? Genesis 2 kind of retells Genesis 1, only it does it a little bit different, like it gives less detail on some stuff, like it doesn't tell us what day, what happened, and then it gives more detail on other stuff, like um, it tells about the garden in Eden, and it tells about the rivers that were there, and it tells how the plants were uh, watered, it tells us a little bit more about the creation of humanity, and here's what it says. It says that God formed Adam out of the dust. You guys want a little tidbit of interesting stuff? Don't say it if you don't mean it. Do you want it or not? Okay. Almost any time, especially in the Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, when you see dust, it's a reference to a temporal thing. It's something that doesn't last forever. It's something that dies. It's the opposite of God. Interesting. That's fascinating, Larry. So God makes this... God makes this, this dirt creature, right, and he gives him rule over all creation. And listen, inside creation, there was Eden, and inside Eden, there was a garden. And in that garden, mankind was placed and given two choices. And those choices were represented by two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God's giving them this choice, and he goes, just pick one. He's saying you can choose the tree of life, and that means that you're gonna trust me and you're gonna trust my blessing and my provision and my protection and my interpretation of what's good and what's evil. You can choose the tree of, you can eat from the tree of life or you can choose from the tree of good and evil. If you do that, that means you're deciding that you're gonna bless yourself. You're gonna take care of yourself. You're gonna provide and protect yourself and you're gonna decide what's good and evil. So God like prevents him, presents these two choices and God's going like this, right? <laughs> choose, choose life, man, choose, choose life. Because if you choose that, then you'll die. Physically, death will come into humanity. But also, spiritually, you'll be separated from God. And this life that I have for you, you guys heard this stuff before? You guys know this stuff? So about this time, God decides to add some um, variety and some diversity to humanity. He says it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs a buddy, man. He needs not, not a zebra or a monkey or an, yeah, a rhinoceros or something. He needs an equal. You know, he needs, he needs a partner. So God says in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a helper that is just right for him. Now here's a point of confusion for a lot of people early in this story. It's this word, helper. Um, it causes a lot of confusion, I think, for people. But remember rule number two? Remember rule number two? Rule number two is, this is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Who was it written to? It was written to God's people, Hebrews, to, well, probably three or 4,000 years ago. So it's important for us to ask, what did this word mean to them? That's what it's written to. What did it mean to them? So let me ask you this. What language did they speak? Portuguese or Chinese, Texan, what did they speak? These people spoke Hebrew, okay? The original readers of the Hebrew, the Old Testament, spoke Hebrew. So this word for helper in Hebrew is the word ezer. Let me hear you say ezer. 
and we've translated it into helper, and that's great, except for in English, the word helper has like a connotation or like a little flavor of being subservient, right? Uh, it's time to set the table. Who's gonna be my little helper, right? That's, right? That's a helper, right? Or like we think of this really powerful person and they've got their little minions following them around and they're taking notes and they're doing their bidding. They're bringing them coffee or whatever. So we think of helper as being kind of less than the person that they're helping. You agree with that? In English, that's kind of what that word implies or something. So some people think that this word implies that man is kind of like God's manager of creation and woman is the assistant manager of creation. And so, listen, we're gonna try harder than that, okay? We're gonna dig deeper than that. This is work. This is, this is God communicating with us. It deserves more attention than that. So let's, let's, let's try to understand what it meant to the people it was written to, right? Let's try to get the real meaning that God really wanted us to get from that. Is that what the original writer of Genesis meant when he said helper? Is that, what, is that what the people it was written to thought? Is that what they thought helper means? Because words can mean lots of stuff, right? Different word, the, the word bat. Is a bat something you whack a baseball with or is it a flying mammal? Yeah, right? Is a club something you join or something you hit a golf ball with? Is home where we live or what we step on to score a run in baseball? Right? I mean, words mean different things, right? So what we want to see is what did they think it meant? Right? What did it mean to the original readers, to the original hearers of this? When they heard helper, when they heard easier, what did they think it meant? So you know one of the best ways we can do that? We can look at other places in the Bible where it uses the same word. And we can say, well, what did it mean there, right? So this word easier appears in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, this thing shows up 19 times, 19 times. These two, right? And then a couple of places, it means like a military helper. So like um, Isaiah 30, it says that Israel is not gonna be a helper to Egypt militarily. And then in Ezekiel 12, it talks about the prince of Jerusalem. He's gonna be overthrown. He's gonna be drug off to Babylon. And his helpers, his protectors, would be scattered like the wind. Nobody's gonna be there to save him. Nobody's gonna be there to protect him and stand up for him. Every other time, in the Old Testament, this word helper is a descriptor of Yahweh. Every other time, after Eden, besides those, every other time, it's referring to God. So after Genesis 2, every time the word helper comes up, it's referring to somebody who helps in a battle, like who's in the foxhole with you, or it's talking about God. So it seems unlikely that the people that read the word Ezer in this original context, thought that it meant a woman was supposed to be subservient to man. That he was, she was supposed to be like his little assistant. She was, she was a helper to him, yeah, she was a helper, like a fellow soldier is a helper in a war. Like God was a helper to Israel. So we need to be really clear on this word. This, yeah, he, Eve was created as a helper, but she was not Adam's minion. She was not ever Adam's flunky. You guys with me so far? Yes. Having fun yet? Yes. <laughs> Just wait. Um, <laughs> here's another super cool word, right? My Bible says, I will make a helper who is just right for him. A, a helper, right, who is just right for him. Or maybe your Bible says, a helper who is suitable for him. 
And here's this word is the word neged. Say neged. So this is not naked, neged. <laughs> neged, okay? And this word is a really interesting word because like all words, it's got a couple of meanings, right? One thing it means is the same. Like looking in a mirror, the same. And the other thing it means is the opposite. What a fascinating word. It means the same and different. So God says, I will make a helper who is the same and different, right? Can you think of a better definition of male and female human beings, <laughs> right? They're the same. They got two ears, they breathe oxygen, they walk upright, right? They're the same, but they're very different, right? They're the same in one super important way, and that is that they were created in the image of God. We already covered that. But obviously, they are distinct, and they are different from each other, and not just physically. Listen, at their core, men and women are very different. And all the married people said, amen. <laughs> and that wasn't an accident. That was not an accident. God didn't like, oh man, I should have made them. That wasn't an accident that he made them differently. So here's a little sidebar. If you're timing me on the sermon, stop the clock just for a second. In our world right now, there's a lot of um, talk about gender fluidity and how gender is like a choice that you make, like what shoes you're gonna put on today, or what school you're gonna go to, or what team you're gonna root for. But the union of these two distinct opposites is really important to the Christian worldview. It's very important. If you're gonna understand the Bible, through the, the, the world through the lens of the Bible, it's very important that you see that these two are opposites, they're the same, but they're very different. They're the same, but they're very different. Intentionally created by God to be the same, but to be the opposite of each other. And here's why this is so important. Look what this represents, okay? Man is made in God's image, right? So we are kinda neged with God, right? We're kinda the same as him. We're created in his image, but we're also neged with God because we're the opposite. Because God is always good, and God is always faithful. God's everywhere. God knows everything. God loves perfectly. God is a creator. We're the creation, right? We're created in his image, so we're neged. You know, we're, we're like him, but we're kind of the opposite of him when it comes to being good and when it comes to being faithful, when it comes to loving perfectly. So we're the same as God and completely different, neged. And human marriage and sex represents something very important. It represents the, the coming together of negeds. It's the, the, the union and the relationship of male and female is an illustration of the beauty of the union and the covenant relationship that God wants between him and man. So this representation of this complete opposite things coming together and becoming one is really important in the biblical story because it represents what God wants, which is for us and him to be one. Amen? Amen. Just a thought. Okay, back to work. 
So in the garden we have these two distinct types of the same little dirt creatures. And they're both made in God's image and they're given an assignment with a blessing. And you remember what the assignment with the blessing was? Rule the earth, eat the food, make the babies, right? So then the plot thickens. You guys know what happens next. Satan comes in, he deceives them. He convinces them that instead of being with God, they could be like God, or they could even be God if they just choose for themselves what's good and what's evil. So they both make that choice, and they both eat that fruit. And God's like, man, you guys made a bad choice. Um, I told you, death, I told you. The consequences of this would be awful. So now sin and corruption and death are in the world. And he tells them what it's gonna look like. So here's, here it comes. This is Genesis 3, 14. Then God said to the serpent, you're first, right? Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is now cursed because of you, and all your life you're gonna struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, even though you'll eat his grains. By the sweat of your brow, you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. So snake, here's your news. You're gonna slither around on the ground forever, and people, except for Ann Stevens, are gonna hate you, right? And, 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 and he, Eve's kids are gonna, someday one of his, Eve's descendants are gonna crush your head, and you're gonna bite him on the foot. Really an important part of the big story, right? Then humans, he's like, okay, I gave you three jobs. Rule, eat, make babies, right? I specifically created you to work together on those things. I specifically gave you those assignments, and you're still gonna have to do them, but you've chosen now to do them in your own power. You, you wanna be God, you're God now. You wanted to make, you wanna decide what's good and what's evil, go ahead. You wanted to rely on yourself instead of me and depend on yourself instead of me, then just get after it. But I'm warning you, man, no more picking fruit off of my trees. Right now, from now on, you're gonna it, the, the literal words here. It's gonna be a painful struggle. It's gonna be a painful struggle for you to make a living. It's gonna be a painful struggle for you to grow food, and you're gonna work and sweat until you die. Now, woman, childbirth is gonna be super painful. Now, it's actually it's the same word. It says childbirth now is gonna be a painful struggle for you, and that's the way it's gonna be. So God kind of like unblesses humanity here, right? And that's terrible. But one good thing is it kind of helps us because we, we kind of, now that they're getting kicked out of paradise, he kind of shows us what paradise was supposed to be by what he takes away from each one of them. Because the original plan, male and female humans were supposed to be distinct, right? Distinct, but complementary, right? They were supposed to work together to execute God's Assignment. They were supposed to cover for each other and complement each other and fill in the gaps and work together and make each other better. And so they were gonna, they were gonna, they were gonna like cover each other's backs, right? So men were probably bigger and taller and stronger and more suited. So when he takes something away, what does he take away from the man? Right, farming, right? Farming, that men were probably more suited for farming physically than women. That doesn't mean that women couldn't be part of the process 
But obviously man's big deal was producing food. I can picture like the man reaching up and pulling down the branch for Eve to grab a pear, right? Or she's driving the tractor and he's, you know, hooking up the, the hitch or whatever. And then females were more physically suited for childbirth. Doesn't mean men didn't have a part in that, just like the woman had a part in the farming, but women had some physical attributes that made it, like she's like the key player, right, in that, in that part of the blessing and of the commission. So God commissioned mankind, Adam, male and female, to work together, to rule over his creation, to be fruitful and multiply, to eat whatever they wanted. And they were a perfect complement to each other. They were neged, man. They were, the, they were the same, but they were different. And they fit perfectly to work together. And together with God's blessing, they could fulfill his commission and nobody was ruling or oppressing nobody. And then starting right there, when sin and evil came into the world, humanity went from blessing to curse. And now God is saying, oh, you're still gonna do those things. You're still, gonna, you're still gonna make babies. And you're still gonna eat. But now it's gonna be a painful struggle. And then there's something else. In the garden there was this, this, this I keep doing this, this oneness between the genders. They were the same, they were opposite. They worked together perfectly. Total harmony, right? No power struggle. It didn't even tell us who was the boss because nobody was the boss. But now, when he's talking to the woman, he says, you know what, you guys are out from under that now. That was my blessing. You're out from under my blessing now. So here's what's gonna happen. He says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And women are gonna always have this longing, this desire for relationship and for equality or control, but sin and pride are on the table now. And so men are gonna rule over you harshly and when sin entered humanity and the world death came with it and hate and violence in fact the very next story is one of their kids killing the other one so from right here from this moment from the blessing turning to curse that's when we see bigger stronger humans oppressing smaller weaker humans and that included men oppressing women and it's been going on ever since man chose the curse instead of the blessing. So we do see men having multiple wives and abusing women and holding down women all through the Old Testament. But what we don't see is God endorsing it. What we don't see is, is the story glorifying it and oh yeah, he abused his wife and look how great it turned out. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's never, ever in a positive life. Everybody likes to talk about Solomon having, he was the wisest man ever, he had 700 wives and all these concubines, he did. And it turned out horrible for him. And it turned out horrible for Israel. This is not held up to us to be a story of this is how good men act. This is held up to us to be a cautionary tale of what not to do. There's lots of stories of multiple wives, polygamy, men just mistreating women all through the Old Testament, but these stories always end badly. They always, think, think of the story of, of Bathsheba 
right? You guys know the story of David and Bathsheba. He sees this woman, that's sexual abuse, man. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly, he's abusing his power to overcome this woman and, and, and force her into sex. That's exactly what happened. So that happened. Would you say it turned out good for David or bad for David? Go home and read the rest of that story and see what happens to David's story starting that day. His family went to, ooh, I almost said something horrible. His family, it went bad. Man, it's the early service. This is, this is being streamed. Edit, edit, edit. Is my face all red? It went bad after that. So just like slavery, listen, just like slavery we said a couple of weeks ago, the fact that God speaks into a world of polygamy and misogyny and the fact that the big story includes little stories of polygamy and misogyny doesn't mean God is for polygamy or misogyny. I mean, it also has stories of rape and kidnapping and murder and incest and, and human sacrifice, but it doesn't mean that God is for those things. Misogyny is a human invention. It's a product of a fallen humanity. God doesn't hate women. God doesn't see women as inferior. He made that clear in the way that he designed the world. And in fact, even in that broken world of man-made misogyny throughout the big story, even in spite of all that stuff, this crazy patriarchal society where men do everything and women are nothing, even in that world, God uses women all through the Old Testament as these powerful, really important women doing these super important things. There's prophets in the Old Testament. Um, Moses' big sister, Miriam, was a prophet in the Old Testament. Ahuldah and Noadiah were prophets in the Old Testament. Um, Deborah was like a great military leader, and here's something you might not know. She was also a prophet and a judge. There was one other person, Samuel, the only other person in the Bible that was a prophet and a judge. Two people in history were a prophet and a judge of God's people, and one of them was a woman. God used Esther to stand up to the most powerful man in the world and save Israel from extinction. So 4,000 years ago in the Near East, a woman had no rights. She had no status. She had no value except to serve men and pump out babies. But even in that world, we see God holding on to his view of women. He sees them as equal in value and in dignity and in purpose. And that's in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, there are so many places that we see women doing these really important, powerful things. Um, Philip had four daughters. All of them were prophets. Get these titles as we're going, okay? Four of uh, Philip's daughters were all prophets. Um, Paul commended a woman named Junia as an outstanding apostle. And if you know Paul, Paul does not take that word lightly. When Paul says somebody's an apostle, that is a big honking deal right there. So he calls this woman, Junia, an, an outstanding apostle. Apostle Phoebe is a New Testament deacon, right? In fact, you know, if you know what Phoebe did? Paul wrote the book of Romans, right? Some people think Romans is the most important piece of theology in the whole Bible. Who agrees with that? Maybe. It might be. Romans is a big deal, right? So Paul writes it, and then he, did, he, did, he go, did he go preach it in Rome? And he wrote him a letter, right? And so you know what they did? He would give the letter to a messenger, to a carrier. Phoebe was the carrier. So her job was, while he was writing it, she was probably sitting in there with him, kicking that stuff back and forth. And now she goes to Rome, and she's like, okay, here's, here's the book of Romans, right? She's going to read it to them, and then they're going to say, well, wait a minute, what's he talking about? And she's going to fill in the blanks. 
So arguably the most important piece of theology in the whole Bible, in the book of Romans, was first preached by a woman. How about that? I like Phoebe. Uh, Priscilla. Priscilla was a church planter. She was a missionary. She led a church in her home. When Apollos, a big deal, right? Paul's partner, Apollos, kind of got off on his theology, Phoebe's the one that straightened him out. Phoebe risked her life to save Paul's skin. Disciples, so what do we got? We got prophets, we got apostles, we got deacons, disciples. Jesus had lots of female disciples, right? The apostles, the 12 that we talk about all the time were chosen from a much bigger group of people that were called disciples. He had four specific ones that we know about, Mary, Joanna, Susanna. They were, they were probably his biggest financial backers. How about that? So get on it, women. Start tithing. Okay. You see how important women are in this story? When Jesus first was going to reveal himself as the resurrected Savior of the world, I'm reading this story up to that point, and I'm thinking it's going to be Peter, right? He's the man, right? He's going to call Peter. Hey, Peter, I'm up, right? Go tell everybody. This is the most important thing that's ever happened. It's the most important thing that's ever going to happen. I've got to pick somebody to let the truth out and tell the world that I've resurrected. Who did he choose? Women. Women. And that was a big risk because nobody took him seriously. So it's, it's amazing how often you see these women holding these really key important roles. The first people that Jesus revealed himself to, to tell Peter and to tell the world about the resurrection were women. In John, in John 4, Jesus, there's a story of Jesus and the woman at the well you guys know that story? So this is one of the most important stories in the Bible of Jesus redeeming people and healing people and using broken people to bring his kingdom come. His disciples go off and do their thing and he's talking to this woman and the disciples come back and they're all like, boss, why are you talking to a woman? You know, they they're, they're, can't believe it and yet Jesus used her to save a whole town. She's like the first evangelist. You know, there are more titles, right? She's like the first evangelist in the Bible. So in the New Testament, we see God choosing to use women for key roles all through the New Testament. So in ancient Israel, in the Old Testament, and in first century Rome in the New Testament, in a world where women were treated like dirt, really, they couldn't go to school, they couldn't own property, they couldn't testify in court. You know, a man could divorce a woman for Jesus said, for any reason. But a woman couldn't divorce a man even if he raped her and beat her. In a world of man-made misogyny and male dominance, God speaks into that world. These books were written to that world. But even in that world, the Bible is not promoting misogyny. Jesus does not hate women. Jesus was elevating women to a higher status because that's what he does, right? Jesus came to elevate all of us and to call us and empower us to become the humanity that we were originally created to be, male and female, by the power of his spirit, becoming the priests and the rulers of this world that God intended for us to be. And remember, that with rule number three, right? Never read a Bible verse. This is all part. Every one of these little things is part of one big story. And at the end of this story, Jesus is coming back. 
and he's going to restore his perfect world, and he's going to redeem his creation, and he is going to bring Eden back, and he is going to, listen, he's going to remove the curse of sin and death, and he's going to fully restore the blessing to mankind. And then we humans, male and female, created in God's image, will perfectly rule God's perfect creation together. Equal. Isn't that good? Opposite. Same. Equal in dignity and value and calling and power. Just as God originally planned it. Meanwhile, now as his church, we're supposed to be his body. Right? So we're supposed to be continuing his work of bringing his kingdom come. We're supposed to be giving the world like a glimpse of what a truly restored world and a truly redeemed humanity looks like. That's like the function, isn't it, of the church. But that leads us to another question. Um, if we see, if, we're, if the New Testament church is supposed to be elevating women, continuing the work of Christ, if, if we're supposed to be seeing the value and dignity and power and beauty and wisdom of women, what is up with Paul? Writing to the New Testament church, the New Testament church. Timothy was in Ephesus, right? And he writes to the church at Corinth. This is the New Testament church. And he says things like women should be quiet in church and they shouldn't even speak. And if, if they have a question, they can wait till they get home and ask their husbands, how do we reconcile that with a God that loves and blesses and elevates and empowers women? Are women supposed to be silent in church? Are women supposed to be silent in our church? What is a woman's role in the church now, or the family, or the world? For answers to these and other exciting questions, come to church next week. <laughs> and we will dig a little deeper. It's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It's easier just to read it. I know what it says. It's what, same as it's always said. I know what it says. Right? It's way easier just to do that. It's a lot of work to dig. It's a lot of work to really go deeper. It's a lot of work to really try to really understand what it's really trying to say to us. But if we are people of the book, we have, we have to be willing to do the work. We have to be willing to, to, to figure out how to read and how not to read the Bible. It's that big a deal. It is, after all, God communicating with us. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that we can see all through the Bible your love for us, male and female. You've called us, you've empowered us, you use us to bring about your will. God, thank you for your love for us and for creating us different than dolphins and flowers and mountains. You created us in your own image. So thank you for creating us to carry on your work. And God, we see the failure of mankind when we try to do things on our own. We see what happens when we choose for ourselves what's good and evil and choose to bless ourselves and do things our own way instead of following you and inheriting the life that you have for us. And so, Lord, as a people, we repent. We turn away from that 
And we wanna turn towards you. We wanna live under your blessing and not under your curse. So God, I just pray that you will, as we're struggling with this hard stuff, you will give us humility and instead of arrogance as we're reading your word. God, that you will give us the energy and the passion for what this book represents. God, will you give us grace with each other and unity together and love for each other as we're tackling these hard subjects. And God, will you help us to be a church that does what you do, that elevates and loves and respects women. In Jesus' name, amen.